Hi there, it's Mark from Third Shot Sports, and you're listening to Pickleball Problems. Pickleball Problems is the show where we talk all things pickleball. Whether you want to discuss technique or tactics, equipment or etiquette, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Mark Renison, and this episode is going to be the second part of our series on pickleball problems for coaches. I've collected a bunch of the emails that I've received, mark at thirdshotsports.com, or Facebook posts, either at Third Shot Sports or at our Facebook uh, pickleball instructors forum, and I've put a few of these questions, these problems that coaches might have, into a collection, and we're going to talk about those today. So if you teach pickleball, stay tuned. That's not Lacey. Come on in, Lacey. So you're in kindergarten now, right? Yeah. And have you been learning some new words in kindergarten? Uh-huh. What kinds of words do you now know? What's a new word for you? Complicated. And do you know what complicated means? No. Fabulous. Do you know what fabulous means? No. Zamboni. Do you know what a Zamboni is? No. Good. So kindergarten's going well? If you're a pickleball instructor who feels like they only kind of know what they're talking about, head over to pickleballcoachinginternational.com. It's the world's best resource for pickleball instructors or people who want to get into coaching. We've got tons of videos, audio files, and downloadable PDFs. You can also get liability insurance and great deals on all sorts of products, like 50% off a Selkirk amped paddle. PickleballCoachingInternational.com. We make good coaches even better. I received this question in an email. Hi, Mark. I see more and more instances of well-known coaches who are teaming up and coaching together. It made me wonder, are there ever conflicts in style or beliefs about what's important? And if there are, how do the coaches manage those when they're working with someone that they don't see eye to eye with? Well, this is a good question, and you have observed something that is a trend in the pickleball industry right now. More and more, you're seeing well-known coaches team up together, and sometimes that's because they happen to be in the same city or the same state, and one calls the other and says, hey, do you want to do some camps together? Sometimes it's that they will travel together. You've seen some destination opportunities come up where people can travel somewhere, usually somewhere tropical, and they get five days of coaching from your favorite coaches. But you're right, there's more and more instances of these team-ups of these dynamic duos who get together to try to provide a really great opportunity for players. But you're also right that pickleball is just like any other profession, pickleball coaching that is, where you might have a co-worker or a colleague that you got to work with but you don't always see eye to eye. So what can you do about it? Well the first thing I would do is to make sure that you talk in advance with this person. So get a sense of how is it that you're going to operate the clinics, and what kinds of things do you want to focus on? It's usually a good idea to divide up the session. So for example, let's say this is a full day session. We go in the morning and I'm working with uh, my best friend, uh, Teddy. Teddy's another great pickleball coach out there and Teddy and I are working together and we decide, hey, how are we going to do this? 
How are we going to operate it? And one of the more common ways of doing it is that you divide the day into blocks. So maybe it's a morning block and an afternoon block. And for that morning block, I, Mark Renison, will be the lead instructor. And so that would mean that Teddy's job is to be there to support me. And so whether that's demonstrating certain drills or games that we're going to do, whether that's providing examples of technique or showing a tactic that we're going to implement, my job would be the lead instructor and Teddy's job would be there in sort of a support role. Now, one of the things we could do is to operate the entire clinic like that. And that is typically done when one coach has a little more experience or a little more, uh, let's say, status, where people are there primarily to see that first coach. And so the second coach there really kind of acts as an assistant. But in other cases, you'll find that these two uh, coaches are really peers, right? They're sort of operating on the same level and people want uh, to get experience from both of them. So what you might do is that that first block, let's call it the morning block, I might be the lead instructor and Teddy is assisting. And then after lunch and we have the afternoon block, Teddy now becomes the lead instructor and I assist. And so this is one way to make sure that uh, people aren't stepping on other people's toes. And, you know, uh, I might think that it's a really great idea to try to take the ball out of the air when someone lobs me. And uh, so when we talk about that, I, I suggest to my students, hey, try to hit the ball out of the air. You can smash it. Teddy, on the other hand, might think that, oh, no, it's better to run back and let that ball bounce and then play a great drop into the kitchen or something like that. And a certain amount of professional courtesy is important here where um, even if you don't totally agree with what the lead instructor is saying at the time, your job there is to not show them up, right? To not have a conflict between you and them, uh, at least not on in front of your students. So that's one of the best ways to do, uh, manage that is to set the time into blocks, make sure you know who is responsible for running which blocks and have the other person there in sort of a support role. But I would also say that Life is much easier when you're on the same wavelength as the people you're working with, right? Uh, your students will see that there's a difference in opinion. If I'm telling my players to take the ball out of the air, hit a smash when you get lobbed, and Teddy's telling them to let it bounce. And so I think it's probably a better idea to avoid the situation when possible. And the way that you do that is be selective about who you work with. So I know personally, I won't mention any names, that there are some coaches out there in the pickleball world where we're just really on different pages. And that might have to do with, um, you know, how aggressive you are when you start the point, whether that's a serve or a turn. That might have to do with uh, the third shot and the role, if any, of the third shot drive in the third shot. And there are coaches out there that we just fundamentally disagree it probably won't be too effective if that person and I or those people and I team up, right? Because we're going to be giving conflicting, really divergent messages to our students. Whereas there are other coaches out there in the world who I find that I really sort of am in sync with. And those people uh, I have worked with in the past and will work with in the future because that way we're on the same page. We're talking the same language. If you're in sync with the people that you're working with, uh, that's generally a better product that you're delivering to the customer. So uh, my suggestion is if you're a pickleball coach who is looking to work with someone else out there, have a conversation before, sit down over a glass of beer or over the phone or whatever you want and talk about uh, what do you imagine those clinics look like? What do you imagine the focus is being? And where do you stand on certain key issues? You don't have to be totally aligned, but it really helps if you're kind of speaking the same language. From our pickleball instructor forum, we had this question. Where I live, we have just one court, but I have a family of six that want to do a lesson together. What are my options for organizing it? 
sometimes pickleball instructors think that you can only do a lesson if you have four people or less on it. And in some ways that's ideal because if you have four people or three people and you become the fourth one and play in, that means everyone's playing all the time and you don't have to worry about uh, rotating people in or managing those numbers. But there are times that you will have more than four people on a court. And that could be in your case here because you have uh, three groups of sort of couples that want to come out and do a lesson with you. It could be because, uh, you know what, for the economics of it to work, you need to have six people uh, per court, and that way you can charge everyone a little bit less and still have uh, cover your costs or whatever it is. You may just have, you know, you have one person, two people show up because they thought they signed up, and, uh, you know, here they are, and you don't want to turn them away. Whatever it is, you have, let's say, six people on one court. So, what are your options? How can you do this? Well, you need to find a way to rotate those people in. It's not going to be very fun if uh, two people have to sit out and just watch for half an hour and then they switch. So how can you rotate those people in in a way that is fun and still active? Well, you've got a few options. One is a timed rotation. So let's say, for example, you've got four people doing a drill together and then you have two other people either sitting on the bench at the side or I find it's generally not a good idea to have people sitting down during their lesson. So let's say you're having them standing at the net post waiting for their turn. And the four people do the drill together for a set amount of time. Let's say it's 60 seconds or 90 seconds. Some sort of timed uh, way before you switch them. And you can just, this is why it's always important to have a watch. So you can set that timer and every 90 seconds, let's say you switch them out and two people come out and then the two people who are off go in and they now get a 90 second water break when you're off. That's one way to do it, a timed rotation. There's another way to rotate them through and that could be after a certain goal is reached. So let's say for example, you've got uh, two people at each baseline. So two at one baseline, two at the other and you have a third person behind each baseline. Okay, and they're back against the wall or against the fence. And so you have like a little triangle, three people all around the baseline, two people right on the baseline doing the drill, and one person just off at the fence. And what you could do, let's say the skill that they're working on is hitting their return of, uh, hitting their serve to the opponent's backhand, and you put a target out on each court. And what you could say is, hey, you hit your serves, and every time that you get it to the backhand in the target, that counts as a point. And as soon as you get four points, you take yourself off, and the person who's been waiting for their turn, they then come in. And so this way, the rotation is based on hitting a target a certain number of times. Now, on one hand, this has an advantage, because players know exactly when they're switching out. Oh, after I hit the target four times, I'm going to switch out. But it has some disadvantages, too. One, it creates a disincentive to hit the target. When I hit the target, that's good. Well, if I do it four times, then I'm out. Hmm, that's bad. I don't want to sit out. I want to play. And so now you have a conflict here between the target and people coming out. So there's a bit of a disincentive there. At the same time, you also have a problem because not everyone's getting equal opportunity. So let's say that I'm a strong player and I, it only takes me five attempts to hit those four targets, right? I miss one. Well, that means that I hit five balls and then I have to take myself out. Let's say that my friend, Ramona, Ramona's not such a good player. And so when she tries to hit that backhand target four times, it doesn't take her five times like me, five attempts. It takes her 20 attempts. So Ramona is now getting way more opportunity than I am, four times as much opportunity, in fact. And so you might say, well, that's not fair. 
right? Mark paid just as much to be here as Ramona did, but Ramona is getting four times the opportunity. So I don't love the sort of performance-based rotation system because um, generally because it's uneven. There's one that sort of splits the difference here, and that would be that you rotate players based on attempts. So let's say, for example, we'll use the um, we we'll use the example of how about a deep return of serve, right? It's important that you can return deep. And so let's say that my uh, the servers are the three of them in a triangle, and the returners are also in a triangle, two people hitting from the baseline and one back at the fence. And the returners are trying to return deep past the cones, past three-quarter court, let's say. Well, you know what? I get four attempts to hit those returns of serve. And we're going to count how many out of four go to the target. But you know what? Regardless of how many go to the target, after four attempts, I take myself out. And so maybe I got two out of four, or three out of four, or one out of four. Doesn't matter. After my four tries, I go out. That then allows the next person to go in and wait. And what I like about this method of rotating, where it's based not on your performance, but on your attempts, is that this way it's even. So whether you're the best player on the court or the worst player on the court, you get four tries, then you switch. And so that way it's fair and no one feels like they're being shortchanged. It's also helpful because that way players get a sense of where they are. So if I'm a player who's always getting zero or one out of four, that's helpful for me to know, hey, I have some work to do to accomplish this task. Whereas if I'm a player who's always getting four out of four, then we know that, oh, I'm doing well at this task. Let's see if I can find a way to make it more challenging. So whether you choose a timed rotation, a performance-based rotation, or an attempt-based rotation system, it is possible, and not that tricky, to have six people on one court and rotate them consistently. In the beginning, we gave you unlimited power and asked just one thing in return. Just one thing. Just keep it in. What were we thinking? Mistakes were made. Lives were lost. But this time, just relax. We've got you covered. Selkirk. Power. Control. No compromise. By now you may know that I'm the one responsible for PickleballCoachingInternational.com. And as well as having the website, we also have a Facebook page. And it was at our Facebook page that we received a message from an instructor who said the following. I have a player who is consistently just not getting it. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about deep serves and returns, coming to the net after hitting the return, receiving the ball when it's high so you can hit down and hit hard, or playing soft low shots when you receive a soft low shot yourself. This person just doesn't get it. What can I do? This is a tricky problem, and I've been there many times, where you have a player, for one reason or another, they're just not picking up what you're putting down. And so what you need to do is to figure out what seems to be the cause here. And it could be that this person just doesn't understand what you're asking them to do, or why you're asking them to do it. And so, as an example, someone may return serve and stay back at the baseline. We often see this from newer players. And that's very often the case just because they don't understand the rationale for coming forward. They understand that coming forward gives them less time to get ready when that third shot gets hit hard at them. And so they might think, hey, if I stand back here at the baseline, I will have more time to handle it, which in fact is true. And so the instructor has the responsibility of making sure their players understand why they're coming to the net. So in the example of returning serve and coming to the line, 
hey, did you know that when you return serve and you come up towards the non-volley zone, you make the distance between you and your opponent shorter? And if it's shorter, that means that when they hit the ball to you and you send it back, the other guys are going to have less time to react, and that's great for you. Oh, and by the way, if you're up near the net, you're also more likely to get a ball when it's high. And if it's high, you can hit down and you can hit fast and you can keep it in. And that, again, will take more time away from your opponents. And very often it's just that there's a lack of understanding why coaches are asking players to do certain things. So that's my first suggestion to you is if you see someone not getting it, check in with them. See if they understand. Ask them, hey, do you know why I'm asking you to play a third shot drop? Mm, no, not really. To slow the game down? No, no, actually it's because if you play a, a slow low ball and your opponents have to hit up, they can't do that much damage. Oh, okay, I never thought about it that way. So, so that's often that's a conversation I've had a number of times with people. If they don't understand why you're asking them to do what they're doing, they generally won't do it. But it could be the case that your student understands what you're asking them to do and why it's important, but they just don't have the physical skills to do it. So maybe, for example, uh, you know, you talk to your players about when they receive a low ball themselves, let's say a third shot drop, how it's intelligent to play a soft low ball themselves, right? A dink. It could be the case that they just don't have sort of the, the physical skills to remove speed from a ball and play it back softly. And so what you'll have to do is a little bit of remedial work with them to help them develop that particular sensation or that particular physical skill. I'm not saying that's easy. It can just take time to do that. What you might also want to do if you have discovered that it's a sort of physical skill that's lacking, right? They can't, they have trouble controlling the direction of their serve because they can't control the paddle face or uh, they have trouble judging balls uh, that they should take out of the air instead of backing up and let them drop is you could assign some homework. You could say to that player, hey, Mary, you've done a really good job when I was right here with you when we talked about receiving the ball when it's high. So here's what I'd like you to do so that you maintain this improvement is before you come back next week, I'd like to see if you could spend uh, three sets of 10 minutes where you go out against a wall and practice sending the ball against the wall so that it bounces back high and then putting your paddle up and hitting it while it's still high. And can you do that th three times for 10 minutes over the next week? And I bet you when you come back, you're going to have this thing mastered. And so giving your students a little bit of homework or maybe calling it something else, right? A challenge, if you like, or an assignment um, or an opportunity will help solidify the little bit of learning that just happened in your lesson. So if you do discover that there's sort of some sort of physical barrier and you're able to break through a little bit in that short moment, give them some homework uh, so they can get the reps in that they need. So when they come back, that new skill is solidified. And then there's the other situation where the person comes out and you, using your professional judgment, realize, after seeing them long enough, that they're just not going to get it. They're not getting it now, and they're probably not going to get it. This is usually the case because someone has uh, such limited physical ability, possibly because of an injury or a disability, that it's a real impediment to them playing. One of the beautiful things about pickleball is that it's relatively easy to start playing. It's a fairly small court. You don't have a lot of space you have to cover by yourself. The relationship between the size of the paddle face and the ball is such that it's fairly easy to start to hit it for most people. But there are some people who will come out and for one reason or another just won't be able to do it. They won't be able to hit the ball anywhere near the center of the paddle on a consistent basis. 
they can't move in a way that's safe and, you know, with enough speed. You don't need a lot, but you do need some speed to move around. And maybe it's even causing some risk, right? Maybe there's balance issues. Maybe there's some other issue that when you look at this person, you have a really tough time imagining them ever having success. And I hate to be the one to tell someone this, um, but sometimes it happens because, you know, it, you don't want to, you don't want to burst the bubble, but if you realize that one person after a certain amount of time, um, they are unlikely to be successful. Sometimes the kindest thing to do is to take that person aside at some point, not during the lesson, but, you know, invite them for coffee or say, Hey, can we talk for a few minutes afterwards? And to say something along the lines of, I can see that you're trying really hard out here and I appreciate it. I also see that this is something that's really tough for you. And you are always welcome to come out to the lessons and to try and, you know, maybe we'll make sure that we find the right group for you. Um, but what I've noticed is that you seem to have trouble doing X, fill in whatever X is. And if you can't do that, it's going to be really tough to play pickleball and to have fun on the court. And it's a tough conversation to have, but, um, you know, being an instructor means being in a role of responsibility and where a role of leadership. And especially if you're talking about a group situation where if one person can't perform the tasks to a sufficient degree, it then holds back the rest of the group. And so unfortunately, that's one of the conversations that you have if you're a pickleball coach with people sometimes, hopefully not very often, um, but sometimes is to say, I'm not quite sure this is the right place for you. It's tough medicine to take, but sometimes it's the right medicine. Someone sent this email to mark at thirdshotsports.com. Hey, Mark, I've been coaching for almost a year now, and things are going pretty well. The trouble is, it seems like there are way more people advertising themselves as pickleball instructors in my area than there used to be. Is it just me, or is the market getting saturated with pickleball coaches? And what can I do to stand out? No, it's not just you. As pickleball explodes the way it is, more people are seeing that there's an opportunity, a business opportunity, to get into the coaching game, the instructing game. This doesn't mean necessarily that they're great coaches, but it does mean that they are willing to trade their time and their advice for money. Or in the case of the people who give away lessons for free, you're now competing against someone who's giving the product away that you're trying to sell. This is not an easy situation. So what do you do? As far as I'm concerned, there are three things that are really important if you want to be successful in the business side of pickleball coaching. The first is that you need to find a way to establish yourself as being different from some of the others. And I'm not saying you should go around slagging other coaches talking about how bad they are. That's actually a really bad way to become a successful coach. Instead, you should highlight the things that make you stand out. Maybe it's that you have 10,000 hours of coaching experience from some previous sport, and so you're really good with people. Maybe your lessons are the only ones around that offer music during the lessons and cookies afterwards. Whatever it is, you need to find a way to stand out from the crowd because it's something extra that you bring or something different, unique, and only you really know what that is. The second thing that's important is that you hustle, that you put in the time. I remember when I was starting my tennis coaching business when we moved to a new town, I hired a kid, teenager, to go drop off flyers at neighbors' mailboxes or put flyers underneath the windshield wipers at parking lots at our local grocery store. You got to put in the time. You got to put in the hustle. 
This can also include going out to open play situations. So let's say there's open play or there's drop-in. Head out to those, meet people, become friendly with them. But watch out, there's a trap. I have a friend who's a lawyer. And my lawyer friend, every once in a while, I call him up and I ask him for some advice. And I expect, hope, that he's going to give me that advice and not send me a bill in the mail. Why? That's because we have a personal relationship, not a professional one. And I'm trying to benefit from that the same way that if he ever has pickleball questions, he asks me. And the risk is that you end up crossing that threshold, changing from having a professional relationship with these people where you get paid for your expertise into having a personal one where they expect that you will give them professional advice, but without charging them the professional fee for it. And so it's a tricky needle to thread to go out and play and be friendly, to establish yourself as having a certain amount of knowledge or expertise that you're willing to share for a price. So I encourage you, go out, do open play, do drop in, be around at the tournaments, give away a little bit, sort of showing that you know something, but don't give away the whole thing. Because why would they buy the cow when they can get the milk for free? And finally, and this is in some ways the simplest, but the hardest to do, is you just need to be great. Look, there are some people out there whose business model is primarily about attracting new customers, about being really slick with their marketing or their advertising. But if they don't have great substance on the ground, if the people who are doing their lessons don't find them amazing, then they're not likely to come back. And they're not likely to tell their friends that they should come back either. So my advice to you is to go out and offer really great lessons. Focus on bringing great value to your players where they walk away happy and they go home and they tell their friends and family about what a great coach you are because it's through that word of mouth advertising that you're going to be the most successful growing your business. And we'll leave it there. Thanks to everyone who sent in a question this week, either to mark at thirdshotsports.com or on our Facebook page, our Twitter, our Instagram. I'd love to know about your pickleball problems, so hit me up on one of those places. Let me know what you're dealing with. Let me know about what kinds of questions you'd like me to answer. Don't forget, if you head over to pickleballcoachinginternational.com and use the promo code PROBLEMS, you can save yourself some money on a PCI membership. And until next time, I'm Mark Renison. See you soon. Bye.